would to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to finish up that text today. We're going to look at verses 16 through 30. And uh, we are continuing our current current, uh, sermon series this week called Things That You Just Don't Talk About in Church. Right? So, um, of course, if you've come here, you know we're not in a current sermon series. Oh, youth, goodbye. It's good to see you guys. We're not in a current sermon series. We are teaching right straight through the Word of God. And lately we've been looking at some things that you just don't talk about in church. We've been looking at the call to humility, right, and crucifying self and living others-centered lives and extending unlimited forgiveness, right? Church discipline, withholding fellowship, and then of course last week, adultery and divorce and remarriage, and this morning we're going to talk about money. And the truth is that most churches don't want to discuss these things, but the fact is that Jesus discussed these things because they're real things, And what I hope, and as I think we've seen, and we're going to see again this morning, is that Jesus has some things to say about these things that are important and that are helpful and that are even encouraging things, right? We're going to look together today at Jesus' encounter with a guy that we all call the rich young ruler. And we're going to hear, in our text, we're going to hear some of the hard things that Jesus had to say to him. And maybe he's saying the same things to a few of us here today. Because we're going to look sort of at, at finding fulfillment in spite of our wealth. So let's pray, because we're going to need the Lord's help this morning. Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord. And no matter what the subject is, Lord, no matter what your word brings to us, we need your help, Lord, as we, uh, as we look into these things, Lord, as we study through them. And we pray above all else, Lord, that as we open up your word, that your spirit would be our teacher. Lord, that you would give us open hearts to receive what the spirit would say to us today, Lord, corporately, uh, personally as well. And we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember in the first half of this chapter, Jesus had just left the Galilee for what would be the last time. And he's traveling through Judea on his way down, of course, to Jerusalem. And we read that he was kind of trapped, right? Tricked by the Pharisees in this attempt to divide these seeking multitudes, right? They were trying to divide the multitudes against him. And we watched as Jesus really dealt with the difficult issues of marriage and divorce and remarriage. And of course, Jesus answered masterfully, didn't he? He gave them a lesson from their own scriptures. He took them all the way back, you'll remember, to the Garden of Eden, right? Talking about establishing the root of both the institution and of the importance of marriage. And so having just dealt with these difficult subjects... Here now Jesus is going to address yet another one that really hits at the heart of every individual. And that's this question that this young ruler is going to ask. It says in verse 16, it says, Now behold, one came to him and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have 
eternal life. Now, each of the first three Gospels, right, the synoptic Gospels, they each record this event of this one who's coming here to Jesus. And when we combine the facts, we learn a little bit more about this individual. All three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that the man was rich. Right? Matthew, a little bit later, is going to tell us that he was young, and Luke's the one that tells us that he was a ruler, probably had oversight over one of the synagogues. And so, of course, we now call him the rich, young ruler. Right? This guy literally had it all. Right? He had money, he had youth, he had power. In other words, he'd made it to the top right? occupationally. He was set financially. He was young and healthy physically, right? And if that doesn't sound like all of the different ideals of this valley that we live in, then I don't know what does, right? And here, the beautiful people here, you know, the portrait of of what we're to be chasing and striving after, right? But you notice this guy wasn't chasing these things like so many. He already had them, And yet we notice that he knew that something was still missing. Now, how do we know that he knew that something was still missing? Well, simply because with all that he had, here he is seeking out Jesus. He has wealth. He has money. He has youth. He was raised with religion. Again, probably he was even the ruler of one of the synagogues. But he still sensed that there was this lack in his life. And of course, the Bible teaches us in Ecclesiastes, it says that he has also set eternity in the human heart. And it was French physicist Blaise Pascal he wrote that there's a God-shaped vacuum within every human being which cannot be filled with any created thing but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus. So there's this sense implanted within each one of us of emptiness and of longing and of wanting for some type of connection with the creator, right? We all want inherently to worship something. And so often what we find, we find this seeming satisfaction temporarily in the things that the world has to offer to us materially. And especially, I think, in pursuit of those things, right? Pursuit of wealth and of power and the benefits and blessings of youth and of strength. But this man, right, this rich young ruler, even at this relatively young age, he had come to realize that none of these things are enough. We know that there has to be more to life. We know that there has to be life after this life. And I was talking this week to a dear brother from church, and he had, surprisingly, he had a co-worker put a meeting unexpectedly on his calendar, right? He didn't understand why, only to find out in meeting with this man that this man was wrestling with his own sense of longing. Right? He was young. He was successful. He apparently was handsome. And yet he was unfulfilled. And what he sensed was he sensed a sense of peace and of satisfaction from our brother. Right? A sense of kind of an otherworldliness. And he somehow knew that that's what he needed. And what he needed to know was what he had to do in order to get it. And notice here the rich young ruler, not unlike this young man, notice in that word do, right? The rich young ruler reveals the hearts 
of all men because his question demonstrates that like all people by nature, he had this orientation towards trying to earn eternal life. The rich young ruler wanted to know what other work, what noble deed could he do in order to inherit eternal life. And so he sought out Jesus, right? Jesus was the new rabbi on the scene. He was the one with the teachings that were unlike anybody else's, right? He was the one who seemed so closely connected to God and who even seemed good, right? So he said to him, Jesus says, why do you call me good in verse 17? No one is good but one, and that is God. Now notice that before actually answering his question directly, Jesus first asks him why he's seeking him out specifically. Notice Jesus didn't deny that he was good, but what he was trying to do was help this young man understand what that actually implies. Jesus is saying, hey, do you understand what you're saying when you call me good? Only God is good, we all know from the Old Testament scriptures. So do you believe that I'm good and therefore that I'm God? And if you do believe that, are you prepared for what I'm about to say to you? Jesus, of course, knew what he was about to say to this man. He knew the way he was about to cut to the heart of the problem. And he was preparing this man to receive that. In just the same way, I know that he so faithfully prepares each one of us. I know that he does it for me when he has something to share with our hearts. Right? So we have to wonder if he paused at all. You know, did he let that sink in a little bit before he continued? Look at the rest of verse 17 because Jesus says, But if you want to enter into life, he says, keep the commandments. Now Jesus' answer to this young man is just as straightforward as the inquiry was itself. He says, look, if you're looking to enter into everlasting life through your doing, then what you have to do is what the law requires. You have to keep the commandments, all of them, and, and keep them in the fullest sense of the word. Now, some read this and they wonder whether Jesus is saying that a person can be saved by keeping the law, when in actuality, what he's saying is absolutely the opposite. What he's doing is he's starting to lead this young man into a deeper understanding of his own need. If anyone could keep the commandments, then he certainly would enter into life, but no one can keep God's law perfectly. It says in Romans chapter 3, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then to the Galatians, Paul wrote that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by what? By faith. So the law was never, ever designed for people to be saved by keeping it. But it was designed to show us that we can't keep it. Right? And that our only hope is that we have help from a Savior. So we need to be first convicted by the law before we feel the need to be saved by God's grace. So it's, it's about what we lack in light 
of the law. So here, Jesus doesn't bring up the law to show the man how to be saved, but he brings it up to show the man that he needed to be saved, right? And of course, for a practicing Jew of that day, right, the rabbis had developed their own set by that day of 613 separate commandments that all had to be kept. And so knowing that, This young man astutely asks in verse 18, he said to him, which ones? So he's basically asking, look, do I have to keep all of those Pharisees' commandments? And look at the rest of verse 18. Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I love what Jesus is doing here because trying to help this guy, Jesus kind of throws him this sort of a a slow softball pitch, if you will. Remember, the Ten Commandments, right, the basis of the law, were originally given to Moses up on Mount Sinai on two different stone tablets. The first four of the commandments on the first tablet, all of those deal with man's relationship with God, right? The internals of our faith. The last six, the ones that were on that second tablet, they all deal with man's relationship with other people, right? The external. So what Jesus is asking him to consider here, he's asking him to consider those last six, right? And he adds that kind of a little summary, love your neighbor as yourself. But what I think is really interesting is that Jesus strategically leaves out the 10th commandment, which is on that second tablet. He leaves out Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, where it says, you shall not covet. And we're going to see why as we read on. But it's almost like here he's saying, hey, You know, before we dig deep, let's start kind of here at the surface. How did you do with these six? And look what it says in verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Now, I read that and I say, wow, there's nothing quite like the confidence of youth. Amen? Here, this guy was pretty sure he had done pretty well his whole life from his youth, keeping all of those six. And actually... We don't have a reason to doubt that this exemplary young man could have kept all of these commandments, at least outwardly, right? At least as as far as he knew, his testimony was probably as sincere as it could be. But certainly where he lacked was that he had never let the light of the word penetrate deeply enough into the recesses of who he really was. Was right, he forgot all about those attitudes of the heart, and it's possible that he may have missed the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where Jesus taught that hatred was the moral equivalent of murder, right? Lust is equal to adultery, and really, he's not that different than so many today that he actually did keep all of these external commandments in a way that made him righteous in the eyes of men. 
Everyone around him could look and say, wow, that guy is righteous, and yet his heart was still searching. Now, of course, from a theological perspective, both tablets right, of the law, that's what are going to test every person before the Lord. It's not just enough to do good by, by our fellow man. We have to do right by God. right? We have to give him the glory and the honor that he deserves. But even from a human perspective, Notice this, I think this is interesting. Even living this kind of an exemplary life, this high moral character, right? Even being in this position where he was rightly related to the people around him, you know, not to mention he was young and he was rich and he was powerful. With all of that, even living a moral life, there was still this sense that something was lacking in this man's life. So it's almost now we're at the point where he's saying, look, if I'm on the right road according to your teachings, why then do I not attain this godly life? And the answer is because outward obedience can never produce inward peace. Right? There was something still lacking and it was reflecting there was something lacking in his relationship with God. And if we look around today, we see that people work so hard. They go to such great lengths so often to seek after what's standing right there in front of them. Because the gospel can seem to be far too simple, can't it? People ask, you know, you share the gospel with them and then they ask, well, there has to be something more I have to do. There has to be a church or a class or a good deed or a program. Maybe I need to go build houses. Maybe I need to serve the needy. But the only way to be fulfilled in life isn't through any of those things. It's through being rightly related to God through Jesus Christ by grace through faith. It's what we ourselves and it's what Jesus himself is longing for because what's really intriguing in Mark chapter 10 which is the parallel account of this Mark tells us that Jesus responds to this young man's answer it says then Jesus looking at him loved him Jesus didn't look at him saying how clueless can you be he didn't look at him saying why weren't you there at the sermon on the mount it says that he loved him he had compassion on this misguided man because he was stuck there in that emptiness of thinking that he could really justify himself somehow before God. And so watch the way Jesus continues to try to help him. He may have kept all of the commandments, at least outwardly, but now Jesus is going to start to have the man consider if he had truly kept those internal commandments inwardly. So now he hits at the heart of the issue, look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So knowing that this young man's possessions were possessing him, right? Jesus wants to set him free from that and he simply says to him, hey, you need to simplify your life and you need to follow me by faith. You see, the, the call to forsake everything and follow Jesus cut right to the heart of this man's issue because it's a call to put God first by faith in everything. 
right? It's a call to obedience to those first, that first tablet of the law, right? Which deals with our relationship with God. Specifically, the very first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have what? No other gods before me. And the rich young ruler had placed the God of wealth before the true and living God. And Jesus was trying to help him to see that and to solve this issue by telling him to go sell all of his earthly treasures so that he could discover his heavenly ones. Now, we need to be very careful in applying this because I think that there's two mistakes that we can very easily make. One of them is to believe that this instruction applies to everyone. And the fact is, Jesus never made this a general command to everyone who would follow him. But it was especially made to this one man whose riches were clearly an obstacle to him being a disciple of Jesus. Now, the other mistake I think we can make is to believe that this instruction applies to no one. Right? When clearly, there are people today for whom the best thing that they could possibly do The best thing they could do for themselves spiritually is to radically forsake all of the materialism that's ruining them practically. There's nowhere in the Bible that we're ever taught that a sinner is saved by selling their goods and giving the money away. Because many a wealthy sinner has tried that, haven't they? But Jesus knew that this man was covetous, right? He loved material wealth. And so by asking him specifically to sell his goods and follow after him, Jesus was forcing him to examine his own heart, right? And to really determine what his priorities were. Because with all of his commendable qualities, the young man still didn't truly love God with all of his heart because his possessions were his true God. They were the thing that was keeping him from really obeying this thing that Jesus is asking of every one of us. It wasn't so much about go and sell as it was about what? Come and follow. See, putting this issue, putting the issue of the man's money aside, Jesus simply called him to be a disciple. He said, follow me. And we've seen him use these same words, haven't we, with many of the disciples who were standing there watching this, right? No doubt he used those very same words ultimately when he called you, right? And when he called me, Jesus simply calls us to be his followers and he does it knowing sometimes that it may mean leaving behind something else that's getting in our way of doing that. For this man, it meant leaving behind all these riches where he had truly set his heart. So in love, Jesus had gone deep here, right? He'd gone right to the heart of the matter, which of course was a matter of what? Of the heart. And sadly, look what happens in verse 22. It says that when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What happened is he went away sorrowful and still in his sin, right? Money was his God. He was guilty of idolatry, 
which of course Jesus knew. And that's why he was you know, asking the man, he was testing his heart by asking him to kind of renounce all of these possessions. And what's so sad about this scene is that the young man went away grieved when he could have gone away in incredibly great joy and peace. And yet he rejected the witness of the Spirit of God as it worked through the Word of God in his heart. Remember in John chapter 4, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, and remember how Jesus told her, he said, go call your husband. And it was that simple command that brought her to a place, first of confession and then of repentance. And then you remember in the story, she goes away rejoicing. And she brings the whole village back, it says, to meet and to see Jesus. And sad to say, this young ruler wouldn't confess his sin. He wouldn't change his mind. And so he went away sad. Because of his, in his sin and his love of money had so filled his hardened heart that the word of God and the spirit couldn't penetrate. And the truth is, Jesus was very clear, again, back to the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he says that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. We can be sure that apart from Christ, even the material possessions that we have here in this life are going to give us no lasting joy or pleasure. It is great to have the things that money can buy, provided we don't lose those things that money can't buy. Think about the exchange that this poor guy had just made. This was a bad business deal, right? <laughs> because to all he, he held on to all of his earthly wealth, but it came at an incredibly high cost. He traded in the peace, peace of conscience and of mental rest. He traded in the peace that he could have had with God, and he traded in the peace of God, and he traded in joy and the life in the spirit, and he traded all of that for the comfort and the conveniences of the flesh. And notice, now... He had unequivocal proof that all of these things, right, all of that wealth actually contributed nothing to his comfort because now he's still miserable while he still has all of this stuff. And the truth is that so will every soul be and so will we be when we put our worldly goods in, our, in the place of the God of the universe, right? When we allow anything, whatever it is, to take that place of priority in our lives. And remember, the overarching principle here isn't simply about possessions, right? It gets much more personal than that because God very often will require an individual individually to give up something for the sake of the kingdom that he may still allow for somebody else specifically. 
And what happens is that there are so many who perish eternally because they forfeit, you know, they, they, all, they forfeit God's blessings here in the present because they will not forsake what it is that the Lord is calling them to forsake. And this principle for us as believers, it reaches far into our lives as disciples. It's not just a conversion question. Jesus was dealing with this issue in this man's life because that's what was holding him back. But in your life and in my life, it might be something completely different. It might be another issue that the Spirit has been speaking about for years to our hearts. And so can I encourage every one of us this morning, reopen your heart to hear from him. If there's an issue Whatever you're holding on to this morning, it's just not worth it. Because here this poor man went sorrowfully away. And notice now Jesus is going to turn to the disciples and now he's going to try to help them understand why they just witnessed what they just witnessed. Look at verse 23. It says that then Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So one problem with our wealth is that so often it encourages a spirit of false independence from God. Not unlike the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says this to that church. He says, you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And, you know, riches so often can put us in a place where we say, hey, why should I pray to or why should I rely on? Why should I seek after God when I can just fall back on my bank account? Right. I can fall back on my investment portfolio. I can go seek out my stockbroker. Right. When our trust is in our own resources instead of in the Lord, and instead of in his ability to promise and to provide, we rob ourselves of the opportunity for him to prove himself to be faithful. And can I say, because I love you guys, that this is one of the main reasons that we are directed in the scriptures to tithe. Now I know I'm in some dangerous territory here this morning. And I will say this before I say anything else. I don't know who gives what here. I have no clue. I don't want to know. But what I do know is that this, you know, in, in tithing, in giving back to the Lord, in giving to the work of the ministry, what we're doing is that we're recognizing that everything that we have comes from him. Right? We're declaring our dependence on him for all of those resources, and we're declaring our faith in him that he can sustain us. And so often we can fall into the trap where we say, Lord, with all of these bills, right, with all of these expenses, the high cost of living here in this area, I need every penny I can get. And yet it's that point when we come and we can say, but Lord, I trust you. And I'm going to act in obedience and I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to trust that you can bless and that you can somehow stretch that kingdom 90% rather than the 100% that I'm trying to hold on to. Talk to anybody 
who's faithful in this area and see if you can find one person, an instance where the Lord has not shown himself to be more than faithful in spite of the circumstances. It's one of the most powerful promises that we have in the Bible. In fact, in Malachi 3.10, God says this. He says, test me in this. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Did you know that this is the only verse in the Bible when God says, test me? All throughout the rest of the scriptures, it says not to test God. It says, do not put the Lord God to the test. And yet this is the one exception which I think is more than intriguing right God not only tells us that it's okay to test him but he actually encourages it he's actually saying do what I ask in this area and see if I don't bless you beyond anything that you can imagine because it's not about the money is it it's about developing our faith and it's about developing our trust and it's about developing our appetites for him Developing our appetites for the things of the kingdom and the things of the spirit. Because God knows that riches can be a problem so often in our lives because they tend to make us satisfied with this life. They make us satisfied with the things here in the physical realm instead of longing as we should for the things of the Lord and for the things of the age to come and for the things of the spirit here and now. And when we find more comfort in the temporal things, what happens, tell me it's not true, is that we start to crave them. And then we find that more and more of our time and our energy is spent seeking after those things and it happens at the expense of seeking after God. And these are very real and they're very practical potential problems that riches can produce in our lives. And yet I I want us to consider one more final pitfall of wealth. And I really think that this is the heart of the heart of the problem. Think back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount right at the very beginning. right? Matthew 5, verse 3, he flings the door open and he shows us how people can enter in to all of the rest of the blessings that he's about to talk about. What does he say? Say it with me. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think that when we take his words there and we we couple them with what he's saying here, that it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom, we understand there's this interesting dynamic at work, especially as we think about our culture and the context we live in, and that's because wealth means power. Not just corporately or politically or socially, but it also means power personally, doesn't it? And individually and sometimes relationally. And power is always far more likely to create pride than it is to create the poverty of spirit that we need. It is very difficult for a wealthy person to be poor in spirit and then enter into all of the rest of those kingdom blessings. And to illustrate this, Jesus offers us this illustration. Look at verse 24. He says, again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So, of course, the question 
right? Was he talking about a literal needle and a camel or, as some suggest, was he talking about something else that the disciples surely would have understood? Now, in Jerusalem, in Jesus' day, all commerce, of course, would stop when the gates of the city were closed on the Sabbath day and every day at sunset. You know, commerce stopped because caravans and camels couldn't enter the walled city. Some say, though, that there was this little gate called the Needle Gate that was actually a gate inside of one of the main gates. And this little Needle Gate could be opened after hours so that access and egress could, could happen, but only for one person at a time. And the only way that a loaded camel could possibly get through this needle gate would be if everything that that camel was carrying was removed from its back and it crawled through the gates down on its knees. So it's at least possible that this is what Jesus is alluding to here, right? Saying that there is a way for a rich man to enter the kingdom, but only if he places no priority on his possessions and is willing to fall to his knees in humility, right? Only if he becomes poor in spirit. Now, there are others who believe that Jesus wasn't talking at all about some kind of a needle gate. In fact, they would say that the needle gate may not actually have even existed and that this wasn't at all pointing to the need for humility, but instead to the impossibility that a literal camel trying to squeeze through the eye of a literal needle. And since this man was trusting in his riches, you know, he could no more enter the kingdom than the largest animal known to them could fit through the smallest possible opening that they could conceive. So it's not just a matter of being improbable, it's literally something that's impossible. Now, whatever interpretation, whatever application you choose to use, and I actually like both of them, we're going to see that for the disciples, this illustration was about to stop them in their tracks. Look at verse 25. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Now, understand it wasn't just this illustration, it was really their theology that was tripping them up because as good Jewish boys, what they had been taught from their youth by the rabbis in those days was that the closer was the closer that one was to God, the richer that person would be. The rabbis taught that riches were always a sign of God's blessing and of God's favor. Now, isn't it ironic? that prosperity theology was around even way back then. Right? But here, Jesus completely shoots that down. He says, look, contrary to popular Jewish theology, riches can actually hinder a person entering into the kingdom. So once again, we see this poor disciples, their minds are blown, right? Their worlds have been completely rocked. They're saying, look, if a rich man can't be saved, then what hope even is there for the rest of us and then he says in verse 26 that Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So apart from God, he says, there's no way that that big camel is getting through that little needle, but with God, he says, 
See, it is possible for the rich man to be saved by God's grace because God's grace enables God to be able to save and then to use that rich man once he gets a hold of his heart. See, here's the key. It's God's grace. The key is the way that God's grace works in our hearts, even the hearts of the rich. Right? The problem isn't having wealth. The problem is how we use our wealth. Right? Abraham, the father of the faith, was an incredibly wealthy man. And yet he was a man of great faith and he was used greatly by God. In fact, many of the greatest men in the scriptures were exceedingly wealthy. Right? We have examples, of course, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon. Right? We think about Nicodemus and Zacchaeus and Joseph of Arimathea, even Barnabas, right? the son of encouragement. All of these men were men of great possessions, which confirms for us that simply possessing possessions isn't inherently wrong, but it's when those possessions start to direct and dictate to us how we spend our time, how we make our decisions, that's when we're in trouble. Right? It's, it's good to possess wealth as long as wealth doesn't possess us. And all of these men were men who were rich and were still able to put God first. In fact, we see it today. Many people in the world, in the kingdom, they do more good for the kingdom by continuing to make money and then reinvesting it into the things that God is doing. But it's all about God's grace. It's all about God operating a person's life and in a person's heart and giving them that kind of an eternal perspective and freeing them from the bondage of our innate materialism. And without that... Until that happens for each one of us, and I'm saying this to all of us who live here in the West and who by comparison are rich beyond compare with most of the world, until that happens for every one of us, our riches and our resources that we're working so hard to amass are nothing more to us spiritually than a deadly snare. We're actually working to our own demise because Jesus makes it so clear we can't follow the king while we're living after worldly wealth and so it's really in in his mercy that he demands everything from those who would follow after him right he demands that we love him supremely and then Peter verse 27 how many times have we read those words lately right then Peter Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Sounds like one of my kids, right? What about me? Right? We've left everything. So Peter saw the contrast. Peter understood the call to discipleship. He says, hey, what the rich young ruler wasn't willing to do, we've already done. So how is our faithfulness going to be rewarded? Now, really, this probably wasn't a wrong question. But it was certainly put in a pretty wrong way. If we admit it, once again, Peter was really only asking what the rest of the disciples and maybe even what we are probably wondering. And so in verse 28, Jesus says to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, 
When the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So here he tenderly assures the disciples, right? They are going to receive great rewards in the kingdom age. Now that reference there to the regeneration, it means when the earth shall be born again, right? The, the, the kingdom millennial age. It's not just talking about a church somewhere in Scotts Valley, right? The apostles, we know, they had the honor of helping to establish the church. Seemingly, they're going to have a special role in the future, future judgment, probably in the sense of some sort of administrative responsibilities there in the kingdom. It's possible, right, that these details, these promises are specific just to those 12. But in verse 29, Jesus adds this incredible encouragement for the rest of us. He says, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So whatever good things any of us may have forsaken for his sake, he says are going to be returned to us a hundredfold. So what that really means is that we're not making sacrifices. What are we making? We're making investments. Though not all of the dividends are going to be received in this life, so many will. Even a hundredfold, whatever's been given up for him is going to be returned to us a hundred times over in addition, he says there, to having eternal life. Now, hundredfold obviously isn't literal in a material sense, or else he would be promising a hundred mothers and a hundred wives, and Lord help me, a hundred children, right? <laughs> Four is plenty. I, you know, the point is that Jesus is going to do more to make up whatever we may have given up for his sake. But the return is so often going to be spiritual instead of material. Hundredfold certainly is literally true in the spiritual sense. Again, think with me about all that the rich young ruler forfeited. Think about the, the hundredfold blessings that we have of joy in the spirit and of peace of conscience and that abiding sense that we now have of God's love. We think about that contentment that we have deep in our hearts. We think about the contentment that we enjoy even in our minds. What price could we possibly put on those things? And when you think about it, hundredfold, it's the very same wording that Jesus used where? He used it back in the parable of the soils. And he referred you know, to the way that God's word multiplies like seeds that are planted. Whatever small seeds we have planted, Jesus says he's going to increase and he's going to multiply. And when we think about it, in that picture of the seeds, the stuff that we harvest does us a lot more goods than those little seeds ever could. And so often, I think, in our lives, it comes right down to sometimes exchanging what is good and getting back what is best. 
Right? We need to, whatever it is that we are holding on to, whatever it is we're afraid to let go of, whether it is something physical or practical, maybe it's something relational, maybe it's something emotional that we're holding on to, Jesus can take it and he can make it better if we'll just give it over to him. And what we see, look around you, think about people that you know, and that those people who are radically following Jesus will not only find their rewards when they get to heaven, but they have these priceless benefits right here on earth now, right? Our needs are met a hundred times over because we don't operate according to the economy of the world. We are living and we operate according to the economy of the kingdom. Now with this promise comes one final word of warning. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, but... Many who are first will be last, and the last first. He says, watch out, Peter. (laughs) He says, you're so proud of the fact that you've given over so much to follow me, but many that are first shall be last, many that are last shall be first. He says, there's going to be some surprises in the accounting once we get to heaven, right? Everything is certainly going to be rewarded, but likely it's going to be rewarded according to a scale and in a different way than we expect. How different? Well, Jesus is going to explain that next time as he's just set the stage perfectly for the parable of the laborers. So you're going to have to plan to be here next week to find out what he's talking about. Now, as we close this morning, I know that this